This morning, if you turn your Bibles to the fourth chapter here in this letter to Timothy, the very first one, first seven verses this morning. And I want to preface this morning's message because I've entitled it Truth for Teachers. And again, I would remind you that you are all teachers to some degree, whether through your actions, your words, whether you happen to have the gift of teaching or not, that the basis for all that we are as the body of Christ is the truth of God's Word. The basis for all that we are as the body of Christ is the truth of God's Word. It's not the writings of man. It isn't the history of church. It's not tradition. It is the Word of God. And so as we endeavor to live our lives on this earth, and as we endeavor to teach others, whether by example or whether in my particular task of being a teacher, literally, of God's Word, the goal is to bring the Word of God to life. The the goal is to live the Word of God before people. And I want to remind you that there are, again, no chapter and verse designations. And as we begin what is our chapter 4 here in our English Bibles, it is an extension of verse 15 in chapter 3. For we are the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. That's the context. We're we're teaching truth, folks. We're living truth. We're, We're supposed to have a very specific standard to our lives. And I think it's very important that we understand, and one of the things that we... Uh, unfortunately, are seeing evaporate in our world today is a strict adherence to the truth of God's Word. It says what it says. It means what it says. It's not open to debate. It isn't that we can alter or take out, remove things that we don't like. And now my preface. I think it's important that you as the church receive the meat of the Word of God. And so I am going to say some things today that fly directly against some very specific groups of people. I mean no disrespect to them. I'm not trying to single anyone out. I'm simply trying to use by way of example those who are in error of the truth, and they are in error of the truth in huge ways, and yet still call themselves Christians. The basis for creation for Christianity is the Word of God. It's not what Calvary Chapel is. It isn't what I say. It is the Word of God. Prayerfully, what you hear me espouse from the pulpit, you will see me live. But more importantly, you will find it in God's Word as truth. We seek the truth. And truth is non-negotiable. I often get into little tiny arguments with people, and they're not really arguments, they're disagreements. Someone will say, well, I have a different truth. By the very nature of truth, there can be no such thing as competing truths. One is true, one is false. There there isn't room for two truths on the same issue. One is true, one is false. We believe that the Word of God is the pillar of and the ground of truth upon which we stand. And so this morning, truths for teachers. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we now take this passage of Scripture and, Lord, examine it, we pray that your Spirit would rightly divide the word spoken to us. Lord, help us to receive it. Lord, with gladness, with purpose. Lord, to apply it to our lives. And as we study... Lord, it will confront perhaps some of those myths, those wives' tales, those falsehoods that maybe even some of us here have believed because we heard someone say it, because we believe it sounded Christian. May we get our truths from your word. May we cling to the truth and teach the truth. Lord, help me, anoint me, Lord, to bring forth your truth. We thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in chapter 4, and 
I want to look at the whole passage. And now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And for every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith, of good doctrine, which you've already carefully followed. But reject profane old wives' tales, and fables, and exercise yourselves towards godliness. Wow. You talk about calling to question poor doctrine. You, you, you talk about moving in such a way as to say, there is such a thing as absolute truth, that all things are not negotiable. We live in a day and time where, in essence, uh, the critical danger, I believe, to the church comes from within the church. It really isn't from the outside. I really don't fear Buddhism taking over the United States of America. I, I don't really fear Islam taking over the United States of America. What I fear is, is that the churches of God cease teaching the Word of God with authority. That's what I fear. That's the danger to me. Because when the church of God, who names the name of Christ, ceases to teach the word of God, which is the truth, then where are we standing? On what do we base our so-called opinions of biblical authority? You see, I don't claim to have all the answers. I claim to know where to find the answers. The answers are contained within God's Word. You may be able to stump me with a question. Can I just tell you that? It's possible. I've had a few. So I'm not sure. We're going to have to search that one out together. But I can tell you this. What I need to know regarding life and godliness comes from God's Word, not from some book of theology. Not from some man's writings about what he saw in a particular vision that flies in the face of what God's Word plainly teaches. Paul here is addressing the Ephesian believers, in essence. He, he's talking to that church. And that church, I remind you, is immersed in a Greek society. And that society, very much like our own society, was steeped in philosophy and vain religion. It was also steeped in pantheism, that there were many gods. And so as Paul writes to Timothy about the church that he pastors, we could look at these notes that are written to Timothy and go, these apply to us too. Because these same last days that are spoken of here, we are simply closer to the end of. They began when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. The last days began. The question for us is, when will the last days end? When does the age of grace come to a close? And I say to you, after 2,000 years, we are a bunch closer than they were then. How much so? I believe very close. Might be today that we see our Savior's face poked through the heavens. I don't know. But I know this, I've been called to teach the truth while I'm still here. Not my own personal opinions about what might be politically correct or expedient. Not what might seem more inclusive or friendly. Not what might make more people feel good about themselves. Family of God, those things are heretical. The Word of God confronts sin, and it confronts sin plainly. And the biggest heresies of our day are the all-inclusiveness of ecumenical teaching that says there's no longer any standard that says such and such is sin. And as I shared with you, I'm going to call out names and groups of people. I do so with some reservation, but I think it's important that you understand how close this is hitting to home. 
By way of example, I shared on Wednesday, I will share with you because many of you were not here. This last week, the Presbyterian Church in America has removed, removed the condition that says a man who applies to be a pastor has to be celibate. He no longer has to be celibate. Furthermore, and I'll quote to you directly, the old wording was within the Presbyterian covenant for marriage. It says that the covenant of marriage is between a man and a woman or chastity and singleness. That was the standard. By the way, that is exactly what our Bible says. You know what the new standard is? Here it is. Quoting directly from the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America now. The new one. Joyful submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all aspects of life. Now that seems broad and it seems inclusive, but it is the doorway to ordain homosexuals. It is the doorway to allow pastors, in essence, to sleep around if they so choose. It is the doorway to open it up to a broader group of people to be inclusive. Scripture makes no such statement. We just saw it. And I want to be loving and I want to be kind. I want to remind you that we have probably millions of people. There are 2.1 supposed members of the Presbyterian Church in America. I believe a vast majority of them love Jesus, and many of the congregations are withdrawing from the Presbyterian Church in America over this. So let me tell you the whole story. It has caused a division within the church because there are many who believe that God's word says what it says and means what it says. There have been some tremendous men of faith. Dr. G. James Kennedy, beloved Presbyterian pastor, a pastor to pastors, tremendous man of God, since passed away. So I'm not simply saying that everyone who attends a Presbyterian church is out of God's will. But I am telling you that the threat comes from within the church. They're plainly altering the plain statements of Scripture. And so this new verbiage, and I want to show you how subtle these things can be. Because you know what? People are tired of fighting the battle over the sanctity of marriage. I talk to people every day. Well, you know, it's just not worth the fight. Let's just let it be. They'll suffer the, I've heard this from pastors. They'll suffer the consequences of their own sin. How can I, as a pastor who believes that by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself, but is a gift of God, that we are saved by grace, how can I then let somebody knowingly engage in behavior that scripture declares will send them to perdition? That's not love. That's not kindness. It is exactly, as this passage says, the doctrines of demons. Am I being strong? Yes, I am. Because you need to tell your friends that they're not okay with God when they're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. You need to tell your friends that their drunkenness is an abomination to God. Now I'm going to get really personal. You need to tell your friends that can't stay out of the candy jar that gluttony is a sin. You need to look at the whole of what Scripture says and says, On that I will stand. You see, this is what we stand on. A Presbyterian constitution is not the Word of God. And furthermore, I would remind you that the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Jesus defined in John 14, For if you love me, keep my commandments. He would say in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Do you see how important these truths are? You can't pick and choose. You don't get to pull out the passages. You don't like what they say. It's not up to me to determine what God accepts and what he doesn't. It's not up to a denomination to do that. If what I believe comes from God's word, then I will be standing on the pillar and the ground of truth. 
But if what I believe comes from a group of guys who got together and said, well, we're, you know, we're seeing our membership decline, so let's be all inclusive. And by the way, that is the reason that's been given. Membership's declining. Family of God, I will preach out in that parking lot. I will preach in that parking lot, in the dirt somewhere, before I declare that anything in your Bible is not to be trusted. If that's what we're going to do, I don't need to be a professional pastor. I'll go back to doing something else, and we'll just teach God's Word. If it means I have to deny the plain teachings of Scripture, I'm not going to do it. Period. You see, Scripture is clear. So when you talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is defined by the Word of God. It means that you've been saved by grace, but Lordship means mastery, does it not? If you've declared that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, you're declaring two totally different things. They're not the same. Savior means that you've been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death, and you will have eternal life. But lordship means that he masters you here and now. That's what it means. And so this passage is strong. It's strong for a reason, because I as a pastor, if I'm not sharing the truth with you, then I am leading you astray. If I say openly, you know, well, you know, we just... We just feel like times have changed, and I think we need to openly accept the fact that there are many wonderful homosexual people and they should be able to get married. God defined marriage, not me. In the beginning, He created them male and female. It was the answer to Adam's loneliness, and when God created a helpmate suitable for him, He did not make Chester. He made Eve. And he told them to be fruitful and multiply. And this is not to point fingers. We need to reach out to people who are caught in the sin of homosexuality. And we need to be kind to them and loving to them. But we can never look them in the eye and go, it's okay with God. It's not okay with God. No more than drunkenness would be. No more than fornication would be. No more than thievery would be. No more than bitterness, anger, and hate would be. So if I'm going to say it's not okay to be bitter, I also have to say it's not okay to be gay. That makes a lot of people very upset. But I have to stand on the truth. I can't change what God's Word says. I would remind you that the whole of Genesis chapter 19 covers the destruction of an entire twin city area because of homosexuality. That the book of Leviticus includes, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman, for the penalty of that is death. You see, the same was said for the adulterer. God hates adultery as well. I don't condone adultery here. If I find out that you're in an extramarital relationship, I am going to come against you as hard as I will against any other type of sin. I'm going to call you on it because God's Word declares it. It's the truth. You may not like it. You may tell me that your husband's a jerk. Your wife has been unkind. You might tell me that your husband doesn't make enough money. You may tell me that your wife put on 20 pounds. I'm going to tell you you're in sin. Because I love you. Because I love you. And I know what God's Word says. And I'm going to try and get you to reconcile. And I'm going to try and cause that person who's caught up in homosexuality to forsake that sin and turn again to the plan of God, which is not homosexuality. You see, we need to stick to the truth. It's not my call. It's going to cause me to have some enemies. It's going to make some of you upset. It may make some of you furious at me. But I would rather have you mad with the truth than happy with the lie. You see, 
this passage flies in the face of moral relativism. It flies in the face of secular humanism. It flies in the face of those who plainly deny the teachings of Scripture. You want to understand how broad that is? Just simply read Romans chapter 1. Read Galatians chapter 5 and 6. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and realize that those are not all inclusive lists. It's God calling into question behaviors that are clearly defined by the whole of Scripture as damaging. I must stand on the truth. You see, we could all, if we do not stand on the truth, be tempted just like these Greek Christians would have. You see, they grew up in a society where it was very tough to be a Christian. Can you imagine in Ephesus, which was ruled over primarily by the Greek pantheon? No, I believe that there's only one God. Are you trying to tell me that Zeus and Poseidon have no power? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. You, you. you mean that the Greek god Hades isn't the god of the underworld? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. For there is only one God. Matter of fact, Paul would write to the church of Ephesus, there's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one Lord overall. That's it. You know how tough that would have been? Do you know how in your face that would have been in Ephesus? The home of the temple of Diana? For great is Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. She was a goddess of sexual pleasure. How tough do you think it's going to be in America to stand against the flow? How tough do you think it's going to be to confront your friends with the truth of God's Word? It's going to be hard, folks. There's no easy route, but if you love them, if I love you, I have to teach you the truth. There's no other way. What you do with it is not up to me. What you do with it is up to you. But when the threat comes from within the church, we're losing the battle. That means the church, as Jesus said, has lost its savor. For what good is salt but to be trampled underfoot? It's just the abrasive powder you throw on the deck of a ship if it's no longer salty, if the light no longer illuminates. As Jonathan Edwards wrote, wisely said, by entertaining of strange persons and men, sometimes we entertain angels unaware, but by entertaining strange doctrines, we have entertained demons unaware. You see, both sides is true. And it says here, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, people will renounce their faith. Notice what's being said here. The New Revised Standard Version, I love what it says, they will renounce their faith. That to not adhere to the doctrines of what Scripture plainly states is to renounce your faith. It's to say, I don't believe it. And family, this is how it works. You can't believe part of what it says. You, you simply can't pick and choose and play Bible trivia. Well, I like this verse. I mean, who doesn't like the fact that we're saved by grace and through faith? Hallelujah! But the same grace that's brought to you by faith also produces a turning from sin. Also produces a repentant heart that says, Lord, I'm wrong, forgive me. Also produces a hatred for the things that God hates and a love for the things that God loves. You see, you can't accept one without the other. Truth is truth. When someone says, well, I, I'm just all about love, brother. Well, praise the Lord, I'm all about love too, but my love has boundaries. Let me explain that to you. How long do you think you're going to stay married? Well, I'm all about love, honey, but by the way, I'm going to sleep with this other woman. I'm all about love, honey. Oh, I really love you, but you know what? I sold your car. You have to walk to work. I'm all about love, honey, and, and I just love you so much, but oh, by the way, we no longer have a home because I just didn't really want one and I'd like to live in a tent. You see, love has its basis in action. Love is not a mental exercise. 
It may be understood with your head and felt with your heart, but it produces a lifestyle. God's love is defined by His Word. We are only loving when we love His way. Now, is that love unconditional in acceptance? Yes, it is. That's why I just told you we need to love people who are caught in every type of sin. We must reach out to them. But loving them is not condoning what they're engaged in. Loving them is not looking at them and going, you know what? Oh, God will all sort it out in the end. Everybody gets saved in the end. It's okay, you know, ultimately God's so loving that He's just going to overlook all sin and in the end Jesus really won't matter. That universalism, that all-inclusiveness that says that no matter what you do, you're okay with God. You see, the problem in Ephesus was a doctrine known as Gnosticism. I shared this with you before. It basically contended that the whole world was evil, and so God wouldn't have anything to do with the natural world. And so it really didn't matter what you did with your body. It only mattered what you did with your mind. And so as I think happy thoughts, well, I meant well. Or how about this? We're in a committed relationship. Sound familiar? Sounds good. Scripture does not let us off the hook so easy, folks. It says, you are my disciples indeed, if you keep my commandments. If you abide in my word. And that word abide means to dwell in, to take up residence in the heart of God's word. Does that sound like you have some notion of what it says, but you do what you want? The answer is, of course not. There is nothing more dangerous than heretical teaching coming from Christians. Because people believe it, and then they stray from the faith, eventually leading to them forsaking their faith. That's why it's called here the teachings of demons, or the doctrines of demons. And unfortunately, it leaves in its wake a swath of betrayed believers. Nothing is really so sad to me as the church that's been falsely taught. Because they're walking around in darkness. They're thinking they're okay. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people come into my office and sit down and say, Well, you know, my pastor told me this. My pastor said God was okay with my live-in girlfriend. Because God saw us as married. No, God didn't see you as married. God saw you as in sin, open rebellion to Him. Because He defined what marriage is. And if you won't be committed to each other, how do you think God feels about it? If you won't say until death do you part, but you want to just keep it together so long as it benefits the two of you, that's the epitome of selfishness. It is not of God. Now, you can tell me all day long that you think you're in a committed relationship. And I'm going to tell you, you're in committed sin. And I'm going to offer you the answer, which is repentance and forgiveness. For if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. Praise the Lord. But how dare I change his standard? How dare I tell you you're okay with God? I can't. And I won't. You may not like it. You may hate my guts. But when we get to heaven, you'll thank me and I'll be blessed. So I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you that your Muslim friends are going to perish eternally. I'm going to tell you your Buddhist friends without Jesus Christ are going to perish eternally. They're not okay with God. There is only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved. The plain teachings of Scripture. Universal salvation is not taught in your Bibles, folks. The, na- the way is narrow that leads unto life. Jesus said that, not Jeff. 
You see, when we examine Scripture for what it says, and we don't read anything into it, but we simply teach what it says, it paints a very different picture than what a lot of the church in America is teaching. There are a lot of very popular churches filled with people by the thousands that are being misled. I shared with you some weeks ago that Time article on Pastor Rob Bell. He pastors a church of almost 7,000 people. He is a complete heretic. And I'll call him on it. He is a heretic. He is teaching that all people eventually go to heaven. The Mormon church teaches that. And he would tell you they're not saved. But he says God's love is so overpowering in the end, he saves everyone. That's his contention. That makes Jesus out to be a liar, I might point to you. Jesus plainly taught on the reality of hell. He spent a lot of time talking about the people who would go there for no one ever going there. You see, people don't like that. You don't like hell. They love heaven, but they don't like hell. I don't like hell. I don't like teaching about hell. I would rather I never have to mention hell. But if Jesus taught on it, I have to teach on it. That's the reality of your choice. When Joshua declared, choose this day whom you will serve, he was making a statement about eternal destiny as well. You have to choose. You can only have one Lord. You can't have two. Jesus said that. No man can serve two masters. You see what the plain teaching of Scripture begins to do for you? It causes extreme focus. It causes you to hone in, if you will, on the one way, the one truth, the one life. It causes you to be very, very, very pointed sometimes. Should we always season with love? Absolutely. 100% of the time. But I share with you strongly because you are the church. I share with you strongly because you have these issues in your lives. I share with you strongly because you have friends who are perishing. I share with you strongly because you may know someone who's caught up in the sin of homosexuality. But you may also know some people who are drunkards. You may likely know some people who are in fornication today. You may know some people who right now are thinking about how they can steal from our government. You see, I don't get to pick and choose what sins are okay. Do you know how grievous it is to a pastor when you get asked questions like, well, do you think God minds if I cheat on my taxes? After all, it's Caesar. Yes, in Jesus' name, he cares whether you cheat on your taxes or not. In fact, Jesus himself rendered unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. You trust God with your finances. You don't have to steal your way into prosperity. You don't have to join some pyramid plan that takes advantage of other people. You don't have to try and figure out how you're going to make money without working. Scripture calls that ill-gotten gain. But a man who works with his hands is blessed, Scripture declares. It is my job to take care of my own family. It's not the government's job. You see, when I believe that Scripture says what Scripture says and it means what it says, it solves a lot of these moral dilemmas all by itself. I don't have to worry about whether I'm for big government or not. I'm not for big government because God's not for big government. He gave personal responsibility to Adam and Eve to tend the garden and to take care of those things that he'd given to them. He didn't establish a big, huge government. And that carries out all throughout history. The larger government has got, the more corrupt it's gotten, and the worse it's gotten for the average person. It's what we have today. That's why I hold the views I hold. When someone says, well, where do you get your political views? I get them from my Bible. I am a Christocrat. That's where I get it. A man who does not work should not eat, Scripture declares. 
doesn't mean that we don't do good things and help people who are less fortunate. We've been commanded to do that as well. But it doesn't mean that you put millions of people into the category, well, you know, we'll just give you what everybody else works for. That doesn't work. It takes away the soul of that person, number one. It takes away the value of those things, number two. You see, Scripture's clear. Are we teaching the Word of God? You see, Jesus said there in Mark chapter 13, verse 21 to 23, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and wonders and lead people astray, if possible, even the elect, the church. You see, there's a lot of false teaching that goes on in churches. You realize you have a false teaching meter in your laps, right? Be Bereans. Pull out your Bible. See what it says. Compare what is said to you from Scripture, not from some council of leadership of some denomination. It's no wonder to me that there's a rift in the Presbyterian church because people are pulling out their Bibles and going, look, it plainly states these things are an abomination to God. Do we believe what it says or not? Because if it's just about what I think, we can come up with a new religion pretty quick. It's going to be everybody gets millions of dollars. None of us will ever gain weight, no matter how many Twinkies we eat. You're all going to have Hummers. Everybody gets a nice house. There'll be no smog. And oh, by the way, you'll never punch a time clock the rest of your days. See, you guys are all signing up. Can I tell you there are some people that teach that from the pulpit? It's called the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Doctrine, folks. Oh, you just plant that seed gift, brother. You know, you just don't have enough faith. You watch that television show and old Uncle Bob gets you nice sweaty do-rag, send it to you in the mail. Thank you, Jesus. And there are people who believe it, and they send in millions of dollars to these guys. Millions doesn't come from Scripture. Scripture teaches exactly the opposite of that. Jesus said, know this, that you will have tribulation. He just gave us the good news, but don't worry about it, because I've overcome the world. He said, ultimately, if you have nothing in this life and you die and go to heaven, winner. But Scripture doesn't say you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Scripture does not declare that God's going to take care of every single one of your little needs that you think you have. But I can tell you what, I start promising people diamond rings and I show up and I got my, you know, limo out there and I'm dressing in my thousand dollar Armani suit with my four hundred dollar shoes. My whole wardrobe doesn't cost that. I shop at Kohl's. I think I paid $22 for a pair of pants. I think I got ripped off. I go to Costco. It's like, man, these pants are 12 bucks. God doesn't promise us those things. His Word doesn't promise us those things. Her- heretical teaching of God's Word has led people who are supposedly Christians to believe those things. And then when their life falls apart, what do they do? exactly what this passage says. They fall away from the faith. I sold my house and gave it to the church. And my wife got cancer. That's not a real God. Do you see how Satan uses these things? Oh, that committed relationship I'm in with that other man. Oh, I wasn't quite so committed. Now I have AIDS. I read an article in Time Magazine this week's issue, that if you're a homosexual man, your likelihood of catching cancer is 90% higher than the general population. You know how big that article was? It was about that big in the corner of about the middle of the magazine. You know why? Because the world's saying, it's okay, it's an alternate lifestyle. You're going to be fine. You're not going to be fine. The social statistics, the medical statistics, 
The psychiatric statistics, every last thing that you legitimately look at says God was right. It isn't good. It's not beneficial. It will not lead you to happiness. It is a very poor substitute for God's plan. You see, but it sounds very nice and very inclusive. It even sounds loving, doesn't it? Well, just live and let live. For me to let people live in sin is to not care about them. It's to say, I don't love you. Say, I don't care about you. I care about you not being mad at me. It's the epitome of selfishness. Well, I don't want anybody to be upset with me. Family of God, can we all admit, we like people to like us, amen? Nobody likes conflict. I've never met a single person. Well, you know, I just thrive on being hated. I have never met that person. But you know what? We need to speak the truth if we really care about people, not fill their heads with lies. Paul's reminded us the same things that False teachers would come. Peter, same thing. The book of Jude, same thing. You you, you see, the tactics of liars are this. You tell part of the truth, and you offer something that appeals to that person's carnal nature. All of a sudden, they're going, wow, you mean I can have this and this too? Who doesn't want that? I liken it this way. You're not very bright if you join the health club and at the same time take out stock and hostess ding-dongs. Amen? It's kind of the same thing. You can't do both. You have to flee sin and you have to cling to the things of the Lord. You have to do exercise and you also have to not eat boxes of ding-dongs. You can't sit there and tell people they're okay in these areas of sin and then expect them to thrive or even survive. You've got to tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So the same person that loves to go to the gym also needs to not eat the ding-dongs. And that is a broad example of almost everything in life. You have to put off the old man, Scripture declares there in Colossians, and put on the new. You've got to do both. With regard to marriage, you need to stop lying and tell the truth. You see the picture? You you see, it doesn't do you any good to tell part of the truth and then lie in some other area. That's what false teachers do. Well, I want you to give, but you know, by the way, I forgot to tell you that if you do, you might still be broke. That's the truth. Scripture doesn't guarantee anything while we're here on this earth of that nature. It just simply says that God will take care of your needs. But they're the way God sees them. He may see that you need to be destitute. By the way, he did that to Connie and I. He saw that we needed to be destitute. Because we were worshiping money. So he took every bit of it away. If I'd been leaning on financial prosperity as a mark of whether I was saved or not, ah, it's straight to hell. You, you see, God's word is true. Scripture declares that every man, and that's not speaking of all pastors, but it simply says that the wisdom of man is a lie. It says here that your conscience will be seared. It's interesting, the word there, Seared is the Greek word cauterizo, from which we get our word cauterize. It means to cover over with scar tissue. Probably most of you, well, all of us guys have scars somewhere. We usually pull them out when we're trying to impress our wives. But those scars have no feeling, right? They're completely dead. You've lost all feeling in that area of your body because it's been... Scarred over. That's the picture here. That eventually if you engage in behaviors long enough that you have been told are okay. Well, you know, God told us to go after every green herb. So I smoked dope my entire life. 
it, it will sear your conscience to where you no longer see that for what it is. You'll have no feelings towards that sin. You engage in that behavior of any kind that's contrary to God's Word. Eventually, you get cauterized in that area of your life. You no longer have feelings. I have a couple of scars on my arms. It's actually kind of funny. My boys and I think it is anyway. We stick pens in them. So I check this out. You can ram a needle in my arm. It doesn't even, I don't even feel it. I know it grows some of you out, but it's an illustration. When your conscience is cauterized, when your conscience is scarred, when your conscience is seared, you can stick something that's supposed to make you go, hey, don't do that. That's not good for you. That's a needle that belongs in thread and, and cloth, not your flesh. And all of a sudden, you're accepting things that you would never accept. Because it's scarred over. Because you've engaged in that behavior for so long that you no longer see it as what it is. It's death dealing. We don't want those kind of things. Satan's tactics are so absolutely stealthy. So I've shared with you before, Satan doesn't walk up to you and go, Hi, my name's Satan, and I'd like to destroy your life. And I know you have a couple of weaknesses, but you can't help yourself, so let me help you. He doesn't do that at all. He waves things in front of your face that are irresistible to you. And he calls them good. He doesn't tell you he's trying to destroy your life. He says, oh, well, you just need that because you can't quite cope. None of us can cope with the things of this earth apart from Christ Jesus as Lord. It's the only way I do cope. There are days I wake up and I go, God, you need to just take us home now. You see, but if we just simply bite on those things and our consciences become seared, eventually what happens? We stop caring. We abandon the truth. You see, we need to not do these things. And he goes on and gives us, as we close this out this morning, notice some of the things he picked on. They, they forbade marriage. They demanded abstinence from food. God never did those things. There's a beautiful picture in Acts chapter 10. And remember Peter was having this vision, and in it was this, this giant blanket, and in it was food, and, and it came to him three times. And you know what was said at the end? Rise, kill, and eat. Rise, kill, and eat. I'm not picking on anyone who happens to believe that a vegetarian lifestyle is right for you. If you think that, praise God, do it with joy. I personally don't. I am a carnivore. I, it's, it's okay. But don't tell me I'm not right with God because I'm eating His creatures. Scripture says differently. Realize there's a whole denomination of supposed Christians that do exactly that. They're called Seventh-day Adventists. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist, you are supposed to be a strict vegetarian. And you are not okay with God if you eat meat. And in fact, they will put you in bondage if you eat meat. And yet, Scripture plainly states that's not the case. You see, you begin to make doctrine out of things that are not worthy of the things that the Lord's told us. He said, be thankful for everything you have. If you like meat, eat it with thankfulness. If you like broccoli, eat it with thankfulness. Eat both with thankfulness. But don't start putting restrictions on people. Don't make issue out of those things that God does not make issue out of. God never told Gentile people to keep the Sabbath. He told the Jews to keep the Sabbath. So you're not going to go to hell because you're worshiping on Sunday right now. You're not out of God's favor because you're worshiping on Sunday right now. You don't have to worry about on Friday night, just as all Jewish people, worrying about when the Shabbat's going to come. It's not for you. 
Scripture declares it is for a perpetual sign unto the nation Israel. And Jesus never repeated it in the New Testament. He repeated all of the ten but that one. Because it wasn't for the Gentiles, it was for the Jews. So when someone comes to you and says, well, I can't believe you go to church on Sunday, you can say, I can go to church seven days a week if I want. And God honors each day. Matter of fact, Paul would say, he makes everyone alike. So let's worship him every day. You you see, you need to get your teaching from Scripture. Not from Ellen G. White. Not from Mary Baker Eddy. She was basically a Gnostic. She believed that the world was basically not to be concerned with. It was only what happened in your mind and in your spirit. And so ultimately, if you don't go to the doctor, even though you have cancer, it's okay. You have medical problems, you don't need to seek a doctor's attention. Matter of fact, if you do, you don't have enough faith. Scripture doesn't teach that. You see, we need to get our teachings from scriptures, not people. We should be enjoying our food. God's given it to us for that purpose. But we shouldn't be gluttons either. Amen? It's a sin. Call it what it is. Sometimes I almost joke. I said, you know, you know I've, never, I've noticed that most pastors never pull out a, a, a sermon on gluttony. <laughs> oh, we're good at avoiding lots of things, but you know what? We can't stay away from the Twinkies. You come to me and say, oh, you know, I just can't resist pie. I'm going to tell you, you need to commit that to the Lord. We need to be careful, folks. Scripture's clear. Get your teaching from Scripture. And again, that's not to put anybody under bondage. I've been, tried to be pretty equal this morning with my sin picking. <laughs> People go, well, should I smoke? I'll tell you no. They'll go, well, it's not mentioned in the Bible. I said, neither is gouging out your eye except by Jesus. And he said, it'd be better that you did. Sure. You know, if you decide that you want to smoke, you know, that that is a liberty. But I can tell you that liberty in in a shortened life expectancy, it, it does things to your body which we know are absolutely harmful, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, if I look at it from that perspective... The decision's actually pretty clear. Again, not to put anybody under bondage. It's just to say, if you want the answer, go to Scripture. Don't come to me and say, well, you know, am I okay? No, I'm going to tell you you're not okay and you should quit. But I'm also going to tell you that the same grace that's necessary to get you to heaven is necessary for the smoking. We get our doctrine from our Bibles. There's an interesting thing that's here as we wrap this up this morning. And I would point it to you this way. Are we consumers or are we stewards? This passage, along with the very beginnings of the book of Genesis, says we are merely stewards of the earth and everything on it. It's not mine. It's not yours. We're supposed to use it correctly. You you see, when you look at it from God's perspective, you're going to find some interesting things. There in the garden, there were basically... Um, what one could call three responsibilities and one privilege given to Adam and Eve. Those three responsibilities were this, to tend the garden, care for it, and refrain from eating that which God said not to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reward was, the joy was, you can have everything else. God has always given us more responsibility than he has privilege. Because he knows what we do with privilege. We often abuse it. But it's interesting there in that context, he said tend. He didn't say take over. He sure didn't say destroy. He didn't say strip mine. He, you know, and again, I, I am not in any sense of the form a radical environmentalist. But I can tell you this, we need to take care of the earth that we've been given by God. Because it belongs to him still. That means we need to care about his creation. That means we need to gently tread on this planet because it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him and the future generations that he may see. 
or sent to this earth. You see, when you look at it that way, then you have the proper perspectives for whales and dolphins and sequoias. Amen? I don't worship them. I believe that there's been only one created being on this earth that was created in God's image, and that's mankind. It wasn't Flipper. Okay? It's not humpback whales. I love humpback whales. Pretty amazing sight when you see a 55-ton animal fling itself completely out of the water. I'm like, that's cool. I can't get myself out of the water that far. I love God's creation. But you know what? I don't worship Fido either. I don't worship my... Well, nobody worships cats. Cats are... I don't even know. They may be possessed, most of them. And and again, friends, do not take this too far. But you see, I, I want to take care of things the way God intended me for. So I must care about people over everything else. I must. You see, God didn't make a whale for Adam. Didn't make a dolphin for Adam. Didn't make a sequoia for Adam. Didn't even make a lovely, wonderful, absolutely adorable Labrador Retriever for Adam. I love my dog. But I do not love my dog the way I love my wife and my children. Nor any of you. There is a difference. You see, that comes from Scripture. I'm not supposed to worship the creation. I'm supposed to worship God. Read Romans chapter 1. Matter of fact, it says the mark of a debased mind is someone who worships the creation. It's the mark of the unbeliever. So for a Christian to get too awfully engaged in that behavior of loving the earth, it's to say you're kind of off base. Tend it, care for it, do all that you can, absolutely, but not at the expense of people. People matter to God. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom Paul said, I am chief. He didn't come to save the Redwoods. He didn't come to fight whale wars. We're stewards, yes. But we tend unto the needs of people. I teach people. I want you to be environmentally conscious insofar as it makes sense with regard to humankind. But when someone asks me, am I for drilling in Anwar? I say yes. Well, the caribou. The caribou have flourished under the current drilling that's in Anwar. And in fact, they're smarter than we are. They hang out underneath the pipeline where the permafrost is no longer. Does that mean that we should take over the whole of the Arctic and drill holes? No. But it means if we're going to be enslaved to Saudi Arabia, who hates our guts, it's probably a better idea. You see, you can have then the effects of your biblical understanding of the world affect everything you think about. Don't get sidetracked. Don't let the wives' tales and the myths of this age, because they sound good, don't they? I mean, who? Do, I mean, face it. Who, who doesn't when you think about uh, simple things? I want our air cleaner. I absolutely do. But clean air isn't going to solve spiritual problems. I want our national parks to be clean and free of trash. It, it drives me insane. I go through Yosemite Valley and I look at what's be, it's just exactly as John Denver said. Paint the trees green, put in concrete. You, you say, I think we should take care of those things, but not at the expense of souls. You know what I see there? A lot of people worshiping that valley. People sitting out there in their little metaphysical state. Oh. I was climbing in Yosemite Valley when I was 17 years old. And I actually found a dude like 800 feet up on Sentinel Needle sitting in a lotus position on a rock. I'm like, you're nuts. Because you know what happens when you do that for very long? Your legs go numb. You ever try climbing a rock when your legs are numb? I'm thinking, you know, you're getting a little carried away here. 
We need to keep things in balance. We need to balance them with the Word of God. We want to know truth from error, and we need to train ourselves in the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, your graciousness of speaking to us as your people, and we pray that as we ponder these words, Lord, of your word, or not mine, but yours, we pray that you would instruct us in righteousness and cause us to have that balance, Lord. May we be great stewards. Would we be unafraid to confront sin? Father God, would we season all of it with love and with gentleness and kindness? Lord, would our lives be testimony of your goodness expressed towards your people? And we pray, God, as we know the truth, and the truth does indeed set us free, that, Lord, those things which we know about you would become truths to us in a deeper way. Lord, we grow in your knowledge and grace each day as we walk with you. We're grateful for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you for being so long-suffering and kind. And, Lord, help us to be the same with others. We pray that these things which are truths would be balanced in such a way that you would receive the glory and the honor and the praise for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.